Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Well, how would you get it done every day? How would you have enough stories? How would you have enough content? That icky word. How will you make a broadcast news show in a podcast format? These are the questions that plagued Theo Balcom and her team of producers at The Daily. Since its launch, the New York Times' daily morning news podcast has proven that the model can work. So how do they get that beast out the door every morning just in time for our commute? In this episode, Theo spills her secrets. We recorded Theo during Work It's How I Make It session, where producers and hosts from top podcasts pull back the curtain on their productions. I'm Sarah Gonzalez, and this is Work It, the podcast, a compilation of recordings from WNYC's Festival for Women in Audio. Hi, um, I'm Theo, and uh, we're here to talk about how we make the daily, and i um, so excited that you're all here. Uh, so I, along with an impeccably talented group of journalists, make the daily every day, and um, I'm excited to tell you a little bit how we do that. Um, and the way I'm going to start is to actually tell you about our first show, because um, I think that will be kind of instructive in answering some of the questions that we had early on when we started to make it. So to start off, we have to start with this guy. Uh, I don't know if anybody here recognizes him. Just remember him. He's pivotal to the making of The Daily. You'll find out why. So before we get to him, I'm going to talk a little bit uh, about me for a second. So a few years ago, I had a dream to make a daily podcast. Um, I pitched it around, and I thought maybe somebody will pick it up. Um, But surely if they do, we'll have plenty of time to experiment and pilot and try a million different scenarios out. And then the time said, do you want to start January 4th? We're launching February 1st. (laughs) So the minute I showed up, forget orientation, we were off to the races. We had lots of ideas about what the show might sound like. And we soon had lots of programming opportunities, shall we say, because just a couple short weeks after I started, we inaugurated a new president. And this fact has been the blessing and the curse of the daily ever since. Um, Because one of the things that people used to say to me when when I would go around pitching this idea was, well, how would you get it done every day? How would you have enough stories? How would you have enough content, that icky word? How would you take this medium podcast that we all thought was evergreen, right? You spend so much time making this that it would then make it a perishable thing. You would, you would make something that would be not listenable after six or 12 hours. How will you make a broadcast news show in a podcast format? And furthermore, why would anybody want that many podcasts in their feed, right? Like, you know, the story of the New Yorker stack at home that just fills you with dread every time you look at it. It was like, that was going to be your podcast feed. It was going to be a million different shows in there all the time. And you would feel this existential sense of dread and you would never want to put your earbuds back in again. So those were just some of the small problems that we needed to solve, and we needed to do it fast because launch day was February 1st. And we went round and round about how we were going to start the show. There was so much pressure because all those people that were asking those questions were like, all right, what you going to do? Pony up. And we were making something that was in many ways the first of its kind, and it was at a place that had put might behind this project. It was the New York Times. And we had a brand new, very small team 
that had just met. Um, I was coming from a legacy audio institution at NPR. Um, and many of the looks that I got when I was leaving were like, good luck, shrug. Um, and, and, you know, the first day just feels so important. You're like, you know, you're putting your stamp out there. You want to make the right impression. And even though it was going to be a daily show, and I knew coming from a daily show that you were just going to get up again the next day and make another one, like that first one still felt so important. And so we're sitting around, we're making pilots, we're going through all the possible ideas, and then two days before launch, I pull up Twitter, and boom. Tuesday, 8 p.m., live. Live on Tuesday at 8 p.m., the night before we launch. (laughs) To which we first responded with horror. (laughs) How are we ever going to be able to make a show the night before, when the news breaks at 8 p.m., okay? So then we sort of thought about it, and then we felt relieved. We had an obvious lead. Thank you, President Trump, for your impeccable timing and your reality TV instincts. (laughs) The Daily is forever grateful for many, many reasons. Because you know what's even better than knowing your obvious lead story two days in advance? What's even better is that the president himself gave us two protagonists. Smack dab in the spotlight. Because if you remember, if you can reach back into the deep recesses of eight months ago, you'll remember. January 30th was the day we were introduced to Neil Gorsuch, who would go on to sit on the Supreme Court. But it was also the day that we were introduced to Thomas Hardiman. Anybody remember him? No? No? You can get him earlier? Okay. I think he's going to be like some nerdy DC trivia answer in a couple of years. Um, I don't remember him either. I had to Google him every time I made this slide. Um, but, but he played a pivotal role in that first day because if you remember, the way that Trump set it up was he said, there are two options, right? He even like went so far as had the guy drive to DC. You know, everyone was saying it was like the bachelor. Who's going to get the rose? <laughs> And this was great for us because it turns out the way that you make a broadcast news show in podcast form is that you make two shows. We had two men, two shows. Who will it be? Drama. So it was January 30th, 2017. We're running around. We're taping interviews for two possible shows, two parallel tracks. Will it be Hardiman? Will it be Gorsuch? Will it be Hardiman? Will it be Gorsuch? Our plan was simple. We were going to call up our our Supreme Court correspondent, Adam Liptak, bone up on both possibilities, tape two different interviews with him, and then we were going to book outside guests for the show. This was something that we were really adamant about. Um, I think it felt fresher back back in February because it was so close to November, but we had a real desire to talk to people outside of... New York, outside of D.C. Um, And so as much as possible, we knew that we wanted to make that part of the DNA of the show. And so we managed to find two different guests um, who had had experiences with both men, but um, there was a little problem. So um, I'm going to play you some never-before-heard audio from the Daily Vaults. And uh, here's what we were up to that day. Thanks for doing this. We're, um, you know, we're, we're in the weird position of needing to basically do shows that build to the late night reveal of who this decision is tonight, if that makes any oh, sense. Oh, that's why you're, I was wondering, why are people asking about that case? But yes, right, this is, this is uh, a case that would be interesting to talk about with Judge Hardman. Would it be interesting, though? Uh, this, is, this is part of the challenge. So, so here's one more, never before heard, from the vault, piece of tape from the Daily. 
I think that his opinion was perfectly consistent with the philosophy that we have seen from him in a number of cases, which is to give a lot of deference to the government's judgment. Not great, okay? This, this woman, for all of her wonderful um, legal background, she just wasn't very compelling. And it was not the way that we wanted to come out of the gate day one. So picture us that night. We've got these two separate shows. We're waiting to hear... Who's it going to be? It's our little team. We have Michael. We have the um, executive producer of NYT Audio, Lisa Tobin. Me, another founding producer of ours, Andy Mills. Our intrepid boss, Sam Dolnick. And we're all huddled in the newsroom the night of the announcement. Everybody else is doing their little print stories, typing away, super quiet, watching it happen. And we are like huddled, like praying, please, Gorsuch, please, Gorsuch. And then Trump comes out, walks out in front of those golden curtains, and announces it's Neil Gorsuch. And we scream, we are so excited. We're like clapping, we're jumping up and down. Every single person in the newsroom is like, what is wrong with these people? Because <laughs> we're this like funny little band of people they've never seen before, right? But they don't know what we know, which is that we have a show. We have a bang up show at that because the man that we talked to about Neil Gorsuch was David Green. Not that, not that David Green, the host of Morning Edition. It's a, I felt like I, this is like the one space I could make this David Green joke. Um, no, this David Green. Hello? Mr. Green, it's Michael Barbaro from the New York Times. How are you? Yeah, go ahead. How can I help you? This David Green... This David Green is the CEO of Hobby Lobby, which is a chain of craft stores. Okay, seems like you're familiar. Um, so, so this David Green, actually his case had been heard by Neil Gorsuch, and Gorsuch had ruled in his favor, and that was one of the reasons why it went on to be heard by the Supreme Court. And um, so his uh, case was about um, his company not wanting to provide certain contraceptives to his employees because he felt that they were, as he told us, quote, taking life. So we did a fairly extended interview with Mr. Green in which he was very giving and very open and and very um, particular about his message and how he felt about his case in Gorsuch. Um, And then toward the end, you can start to hear him kind of get a little suspicious. Like, you know, we've called him up, we're this podcast that has never existed before. Um, And and so he starts to to kind of be a little bit confrontational with Michael in this way that I just want to play for you because I think um, it it's 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 important to hear. Uh, so so here here he is uh, coming back at Michael a bit. The liberal press will never say this. They will never say that we offered sixteen different contraceptives, and I don't see you doing it. That way, you guys won't write because it doesn't fit your narrative, does it? Well, the beauty of audio is that you're saying it, and our listeners are hearing it. <laughs> And that moment, I mean, we had debate about that moment. Um, is it something we, I think most of us on the team were adamant that that was something that we needed to save and needed to be heard. And, and I think it sets up this special thing that has become a real DNA of the show, which is that we call up people who don't necessarily agree with our listeners, who don't necessarily agree with us, who we let share their stories and defend their views. And we do it in an extended, long-form way, but we do it on a daily show. And so what we learned from, from David Green was that, that people would answer our calls and that we would be able to share their point of view and that we'd be able to actually take 
a rich amount of time to create profiles around the people that uh, that we wanted to hear from. And so I think this is a fundamental thing that that has carried us through. In fact, if you listen to today's show, uh, there was a, an interview with a, a man who owned a, a gun store. And he says at the end, Michael says to him, um, how does it feel when you see mass shootings? He had sold a gun that led to the Virginia Tech shooting. And the man says, I react the same way you do. It's no different. And that bridging of the gap between, you know, somebody who you think has nothing in common with you, but actually has a similar reaction to, to, to us or whoever us is, you know, to other people is, um, is a fundamental part of the show. So that's, that's the, that's the uh, exhaustive, action-packed, origin story of our show. Um, and now I want to talk about what I think um, are the sort of two fundamental things that make that make the show work. Um, so first off, we're going to start about, talk about how we program. Um, so we start off the day by going to a morning meeting at the Times. It's uh, called the 930 meeting. It used to be called the front page meeting when news was really dominated by how are they going to fill the front page of the newspaper. Um, they've since renamed that because now it's really filling the homepage. It's filling graphics. It's filling video. It's filling the daily. So we go there and we mostly just listen. We take in a lot of the pitches that are coming in from the different desks. And then we invariably, we always have more questions ourselves. So we go back and have a smaller meeting with just the daily team. And we then try to figure out what we're going to push on that day. And usually that starts with just our own curiosity. So um, we very often end up just just structuring around very simple questions that we want answered. And then we move forward with that and we create the narratives that we want to create and we think we have a great show. But as any of you who have programmed know, uh, very often your best laid plans can just get completely blown up. Um, and so there are days where we've crafted a beautiful show that gets blown out by breaking news. And breaking news, uh, for anybody who's lived in the world for the last nine months, you know it's very, very usual, not at all rare, especially at five o'clock. Um, so this is, this is hard for, from a programming perspective, but it's actually one of our greatest gifts, right? Because very often those scoops, that breaking news is driven by Times journalists. So we get to call them up. Um, and so I'm going to play, um, an example in a second of, of a day that was dominated by a scoop. Um, but there are other days where, you know, Maggie Haberman hasn't broken the story that Steve Bannon is out at the White House. And in those days, we have to set the agenda ourselves. And so that's a totally different programming beast, right? So, and, and I think those are some of our, our best shows because it makes us sound different, right? We're the people who are setting the agenda. So I have two tops of two different segments here to, to play to kind of show you that, that variation. Um, so this first one is one that was dictated by a scoop. And I'm um, just going to play the start of that. Matapuzo, what happened on July 26th? This is a Wednesday, early morning, dawn, and Paul Manafort, President Trump's former campaign chairman, is asleep at home in Northern Virginia and totally unannounced. The FBI forces its way into his home. This is not your typical boom, 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 open up where the FBI and, you know, a groggy Paul Manafort puts on a slipper and comes to the door. This is the FBI forcibly going into the home and searching for evidence. Wow. So that was Matapuzo, who was the only person who knew about 
this event, right? He's the one who broke it. He he had these details that were so juicy. I mean, he talks about, you know, going into Manafort's closet and they're looking at his suits. Um, and so we made the decision that that was, that was newsy enough, breaking enough that we were going to start with that. But we're going to do it in a way that doesn't feel breaking news, that doesn't feel like this just in, the daily has learned, right? That instead feels like we're in a place. We are with... Manafort as he's being woken up in his slippers and running, you know, from the FBI or whatever his actual reaction was. And and so so we're going to figure out a way to take that breaking news, but we're going to make it sound a lot more narrative and hopefully immersive and, you know, pulls you in and you want to know more and more and more because that's the start of it, right? That's that's the scene that, that gets you there. But that the rest of that interview actually went to a much deeper place about what Robert Mueller is actually up to. What is he looking for? Why is he going into Paul Manafort's house? And what is his end game? Um, so, but we always want to start, even when it's breaking, we always want to start in a place or in a, in a visceral moment so that you feel totally engaged and then you get the kind of nuts and bolts of what is actually going on as the interview unfolds. So that is a pretty easy day. That's pretty obvious. Like, we got that. We know we know that this is big news, and we know that, that that's what's going to dominate our first segment. But very often there are days not like that. Um, and, and at that point, we kind of just have to make up something interesting to us. So I'm going to play you um, the top of the show for a day like that. From The New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today, the U.S. had a plan for North Korea. To impose sanctions so brutal, the country would have to choose between survival or giving up its nuclear program. And he loves Whitney Houston, the Chicago Bulls, and intercontinental ballistic missiles. The 33-year-old dictator who is determined to hold on to that nuclear program. It's Tuesday, September 12th. Okay, so I just love that. Whitney Houston, Chicago Bulls, and ICBMs. Um, I love it. So, so on that day, we were just like, okay, I guess what we're gonna do is we're gonna we're gonna blow the pants off of a Kim Jong Un profile. Like that was something that we had long in the plans that we had had on the shelf, and there wasn't any obvious. Uh, lead that day. So we said, okay, we'll make we'll make something around this. We'll we'll blow your mind with some exciting details about Kim Jong-un's life, um, like the fact that he dresses like his grandfather so much so that he like has gained weight so that he can be as fat as he was. He's changed his hairstyle so that he can look more like him. So anyway, so that that's just a, an example of what I think kind of sets us apart when you hear from people about why they're responding to the show. It's that we're not choosing necessarily the most obvious news story every day. We're choosing something that is going to be more narrative and more immersive and 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 add to your to your news diet in that way. Um, and then just one more example of, of a programming decision that we, we sometimes Sometimes make both of these stories that I mentioned were driven by the newsroom itself, and I'm going to be talking more about the reporters in a second and how important they are to us. But the other thing that we're able to do is that we are able to bring our own stories that we want to tell that aren't anything to do with the paper. And a recent example of that was that we talked to a man named Derek Black, who was a former white nationalist who 
um, whose godfather was David Duke and whose dad started Stormfront, the biggest um, neo-Nazi website on the internet. And um, and that is something that we just wanted to do because we wanted to do it, right? Derek Black was never in the paper. He, he, he was never chased by any of our reporters. That was just something that we at The Daily wanted to make. And that, I feel like, is the, is the like, evolution that we've gotten to, right? Where we started off being super reliant on the paper and we still are in so many ways, but we're also able now to just do what we want and we can kind of break through that way. So, okay, that's that's up with programming. Um, so now the second most important thing I think about how the daily works is is the reliance on our reporters. And, and the great tagline that Lisa Tobin uses all the time to describe our show is that we're powered by New York Times journalism. And it's the most true thing. And the operators of that power, that engine or whatever, um, is the people who make us go. The, those are our reporters. And there are just reporters all over the world who are out there digging up stories. They're just like digging in these mines and producing these diamonds for us. And we're able to just go and choose the very best ones. Um, and there are a million things I could say about working with them, but, but these are some that I want to talk about. Um, and the first one is that we let our reporters think. I think this this is like sort of a simple thing, but I'm going to play you something here, which I think will illustrate it. It's from our Pentagon correspondent, Helene Cooper. And we talked to her the night that President Trump ordered a missile strike in Syria. Are we now at war with Syria? I don't know the answer to whether we are at war. We're certainly, you know, many people will say that, and especially if you get civilian casualties. Technically, we're not, there's no declaration of mm-hmm. war with Syria, but that's a fine, that's a pretty fine point. And that's something that, you know, many smarter people than me will, will debate forever. I'm going to have to run, Michael. Thank you, Helene. I really appreciate your time. Good luck. Ready. Okay, bye. Bye. So, like, how rare is that for a reporter to be able to say, I don't know. You don't hear reporters say that in broadcast. There's, there's either a fear or there's something keeping them from being able to be honest about where they are in their reporting process. And, and the pause, when, like I live for that pause where, where Michael has just asked this like wicked provocative question and then you're just, you're on the edge of your seat, right? You're like, what, what are we? Are we? Um, so we let our reporters think. And, and then very often we ask them to think a lot more because they may come with a story um, that, that works great in print and we might be really interested in it, but we're going to be able to push it in audio in a way that you wouldn't experience it as a print story. So um, an example of I'm thinking of is, uh, is a reporter, Kevin Roos, who had him, he comes to us and he says, I embedded in neo-Nazi chat rooms. And we're like, whoa, okay, uh, we'd like to know more about that. And in his print story, he focused a bunch on this app that these guys were using, which is like a video game app that they then sort of subverted for their own purpose to be able to talk about these alt-right ideas, um, which was interesting, but like wasn't, wasn't super juicy for us. But so then we say, well, can you, can you tell us about what you heard while you were in there? And we were able to make, um, we were able to make something that sounds like this. Talk me through the first time that you got into one of these groups, these servers. Wow, that's really funny. Wow. Reacting away on the voice chat channel. Did we hit 4K? Did we hit 4K? We're getting close. Questions about white supremacy or, you know, neo-Nazism. Is there like a dating website for neo-Nazis? 
How do I get a neo-Nazi girlfriend? Like, I want one. A lot of it is people responding to the news. They'll post in, you know, the latest thing that Trump tweeted or the latest story from the New York Times or CNN or somewhere else and talk about it. You don't understand. It's Trump's America. We can do whatever we want. It's Trump's America. We can do whatever we want. So that obviously is not something that's going to come through in the Prince story, right? That's something that that only we are able to tell in this medium. I mean, the other the other stuff that happened in that segment was they went on to talk about all of the logistical planning, like everybody get your tiki torches and don't wear hoods. That's really old school. You'll look really old KKK-like. Wear khakis and polos. That'll look nicer. Um, so all of this stuff that we're able to take the reporting that, the, that, that all of the very smart reporters have done, but we're able to rejigger it and, and, and add to it in a way that I think um, just benefits the reporting all the much more. Um, and so we go to, to wherever the reporters are, if that's in chat rooms with neo-Nazis or in Mosul, like our fabulous colleagues, Rukmini Kalimaki and Andy Mills, they're reporting from Mosul that we had a couple months ago. Um, and we also just go to them at their desks. Um, we just go where they are. And so this, this example I want to play for you next was a reporter who was working on a breaking news story, which was Bill O'Reilly's ouster at Fox. Give me like, I just, we just have like something big that we're trying to confirm. So we just need like a little bit of time to do that. Is that okay? Okay. Okay. Thanks. So it's 2.45. We're in the newsroom on the second floor where the business section is. And I'm standing in front of the media group, which is completely crazed right now. And every single reporter here is working on the same story. So we went to Emily Steele's desk because she was just too busy to actually come up to our studio. Um, And it was, in some ways, a workaround, right? I was like, guys, we got to get her to... She is the person, right? She is the person who ultimately led to his his firing. And so we said, okay, we'll just go to her desk. And it actually led to what I think is this really neat kind of intimate moment where Michael is there as she's trying to narrow, you know, get the, get the story nailed. And, um, and, and he did the entire interview with her there, there at her desk. Um, so we go to people's desks. We also end up talking to reporters a lot when they're out in the field doing other reporting. And my favorite example of this was our colleague, uh, Mike Schmidt who had a terrible cell phone, uh, but a terrific scoop. Hey. Hey. Sorry, so I got the folks here at Kinko's to let me use the phone. (laughs) How did you do that? I I told them I needed to call the office. (laughs) But the problem is I got my laptop on the other side of Kinko's here. I'm afraid some Russian spy is going to take it, so i got to keep my eyes on it. Michael Schmidt called us from the only landline he could find. So, Mike, what did you find? So Comey gets fired on Tuesday. I go in the office 7 a.m. on Wednesday morning. We're just trying to figure out what the heck happened and mm-hmm. start making some calls early. And and through those early calls and that reporting, I think Mike would reveal probably the newsiest news we've ever had on the show. Trump turns to Comey and says, do I have your loyalty? Mm-hmm. And Comey says, you have my honesty. Wow. And, of course, after that whole thing unfurled, we had to thank those responsible. Mike, thank you very much, and please thank... Joshua is going to kill me here. He wants me to go. The folks at Kinko's... uh, Joshua, thank you very much. He's in training. Um, All right. Bye. Bye, Mike. 
Yeah, and of course, uh, this is just my final note, and I don't have to tell you guys this, but what I think that does is it lends a, f a, a beautiful connection between Michael and Mike, between Mike and us, the listener, between us and Joshua at Kinko's, you know, like, like there's just an, uh, an informality and uh, a conversational quality to, to that that we try to maintain in whatever we do. And I think that is what people have responded to so much with the show and is what gives me hope that, that through those techniques, we're going to be able to get news to way more people than we ever could. And so... Um, I just love, I just love that. I love that it was this Joshua moment at the time when Mike had the biggest story of all and that, you know, there, we could have freaked out and said, oh my God, we're talking to him on a landline in the middle of the country at a Kinko's. This is, you know, this is the Oval Office meeting. This is the biggest story of our generation, but we made it work. And that's, that's what you do when you make a daily show. So I would love to answer any questions that you guys have now. Um, about anything. So there's a mic right here, which um, the nice man asked us to use so that people can hear on the recording. I'll, I'll start because I'm right here. Great. <laughs> um, so I, I'm wondering about, I feel like the daily feels like there's breath without mm. it ever seeming slow. Mm, and I would love good. to hear you talk about sound design yeah. and editing choices because mm -hmm. you don't sound like breaking news, <laughs> but yeah. you feel like you're getting something in depth without being... Yeah. Board. Thank you for saying that because it's a funny thing coming. So I came from All Things Considered where the longest story you could do was eight minutes long. And I thought when I was coming here, I knew that we wanted to make something brief. That was the other thing that we were kind of breaking the mold on, right? We weren't going to make a 45-minute hour-long show. We were going to make a 20 to 25-minute show. And so I thought what that would mean was actually shorter segments. But what we've realized is that what we can do is actually take way more time than you ever could on another broadcast clock because we can dive into one story or two stories. And the way that we make that calculation is mainly based on how much archival tape we're going to be able to build into the segment. So let's say we have a story um, about uh, the history of the clean power plan, okay? If you pitch that story, you might think, geez, Theo, that's a real snooze. But what we're able to do is we're able to take tape from Obama introducing the plan. We're able to take tape from Scott Pruitt suing the government over that plan. We're able to find tape of Trump on the campaign trail saying, I'm, uh, you know, these are the reasons that I'm against environmental regulation for XX and X reasons. And then you, and then you hear Trump in the Rose Garden saying, we're going to pull out of Paris. Like, like we know that we're going to have those kind of clips that we're going to want to play in long chunks. And so we're going to take time to make that story a bit longer than if when you originally hear it, you think, oh, I can get that done in five minutes. The other thing that dictates that is if we have a good talker, right? We, we obviously always try to find outside guests that are really compelling and, and, and very often we'll make a show out of them. Like there was a congressman we talked to, this man named Tom Rooney, who was from Florida, and he had been at, this, at the shooting where Steve Scalise was shot in the baseball field in Virginia. And we thought we'd get him on the phone and he'd say a couple things, you know, I'm sort of tired of being a Republican in Congress. I just have to sign budget bills. It's boring. Instead, he gave us this beautiful thing that we ended up making like 30 minutes long. Like, can you imagine, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a congressman interview for 30 minutes. Like, that's crazy. But it was so compelling, and he was so honest. And he talked about how, you know, he felt post-shooting, and he talked about how he, how he got into Congress because he wanted to make a difference. And now he's just signing budget deals every year, and that's not satisfying. So I think it's dictated both by 
the quality of the people that we've talked to, I'm not talking about our reporters, but mostly our outside guests, and the quality of the archival sound that we're going to be able to add to it. And I think in terms of pace, we are really committed to that because we don't want to give you information too quickly. We want you to be able to absorb stuff. We want to ask the dumb questions that you're thinking. And so we want to allow time for that. Um, but we also don't want somebody droning on forever, right? And so that's when we use our sort of production tricks. That's when we bring in the archival sound, we bring in scoring, and we bring in stuff to move along faster. But we don't want to get to it too quickly. Like, there's an example, I don't know if you guys remember the the story of um, a transgender woman who was in the military. And the day that Trump tweeted about uh, banning transgender uh, military members, we called her up and... And the reporter, or sorry, the producer on our team had cut it, and it was pretty tight. You know, you got very quickly to her reaction to the ban. And I said, we gotta, we got to loosen this up a little bit. We've just met this woman. The first thing that we hear from her can't be, I don't, I don't agree with the president, right? We have to understand her story. So we, like, build in that, that arc, right? So for the first two or three minutes, you're just hearing about why she wanted to be in the military. You're hearing about her relationship with her dad. You're hearing about how how her training has been and, and what she's learned while she's been there. And then you kind of back into, okay, but seriously, how did you feel when you saw those tweets? So those are the kind of rhythm things that we deal with a lot. Is that is that helpful? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. 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 Great. Yeah. Let's talk. I was just going to ask about your schedule yeah. and your hours and um, yeah. the plan for the day. Yeah. So when we come into that 9.30 meeting, then we um, we meet usually about 10.15, 10.30. We hammer out ideas for about an hour. Hopefully by 11.30 or 12, we've figured out what we're going to do that day. Some days we come in and we know very clearly, like, this is the second segment that we're going to have, and then we're going to put a newsy topper on it. Or we know there's a magazine piece coming, and we're going to fill our whole show with that segment. Other days, we're making it up out of whole cloth. Other days, we're like, Oh, maybe there will be a scoop at five because we need something. Um, so, so each day is a little bit different. But then, hopefully, we're taping things um, in between, like noon and three, and then we do, um, you know, scripting, and we start grabbing archival audio, and we start uh, figuring out how the narrative is going to work and the scripting for that. And then we tape the interviews, and then we're just post production the rest of the day. And some days that's quick, and some days it's not. So yeah. if there's something that breaks at five. Then we change totally, right? Then then if there's something that's happening at five or six. But but the other thing that we're doing is we're making a judgment about how breaking is breaking. Like, we don't want to give you something that's just what you're going to hear everywhere else. Like, if the thing that's breaking at five can be accomplished in a, in a meaty and substantial way, then we'll do it. But if we're like, you know what, this actually doesn't merit a full segment and we can't actually, we can't actually conceive of that segment and execute it properly— in the time that we have left, then we'll leave it for the next day or we'll put it in a headline. We call those little segments at the back end of the show, our headlines. Here's what else you need to know today. And then we'll just write into some tape there. Yeah. Hi, hey. I'm Gianna. Um, I think this is sort of a follow-up question to that. I'm wondering if you can talk about the nuts and bolts of the division of labor, uh-huh. like who's doing what and sure. how a show gets made. Sure. So we have, um, now we're a little bit bigger team. We're still growing, but um, we have a handful of producers, um, our host, Michael, uh, our executive producer of audio, Lisa and me. And we um, basically, there are at least three people who have hands on every segment. Um, that's both in the construction of the piece and also in the post-production afterwards, but it's usually that one or two producers are working on each segment at a time, and then there's Michael, and then there's an editor. 
Um, and so the way that we figured out the division of labor kind of depends on the segment. Like very often there's so much in one person's head that only that person can hold on to that segment. Like there's not a lot of transfer of information very often just because the things that we have and the ideas that we have are so complicated that like if I were to turn to you and be like, okay, so what you need to do is you need to find this archival audio and then this music for this scoring. And then you need to cut from this question to that question. And then we retook it in the end and then come back around to this idea that we had this morning. Like there's, there's, um, there's a lot of information just stored in, in individual people, if that makes sense. So it's hard to kind of, uh, download to others. But anyway, so, so it's usually people are trying to, to tag team that together. So there might be a reporter piece that we taped it to. I might cut the beginning of that interview and my, and another producer might cut the back end of that interview. And then there might be another producer who's pulling archival sound to plug into it. And then I'd say, okay, here's my top take this and they'll start plugging in the audio themselves and then they'll give it back to me. And then I'll fine tune from there. And then we'll get and edit. Um, and, and usually the edit, if we have time, we'll do two. It's, it's hard, it's hard with our deadline to have a lot of, of rounds of edits. So most of the work is done on that front end with the, with the handful of producers working on each segment. Okay. Yeah. Hi, hey. I'm Pia. And I wanted to ask you about how you landed on Michael mm. as, um, your choice of host. <laughs> I feel like he is just such a incredibly important part of what I makes... Know. Yeah. Um, people, you know, what people love about the daily. I and I, yeah. I was wondering kind of how many other people did you consider? What were you looking for when you yeah. were imagining what kind of host you want? And yeah. also how you navigate, you know, the times in its print form has mm-hmm. such a kind of defined voice mm. and what mm, kind of balance yeah. you have to walk in terms of making this Michael's show and making this the times of the show. Yeah. So, um, Michael was it. I mean, Michael did, uh, the election show that the times did called the run up. I don't know if anybody listened to that, that launched in August, uh, and then ran through election day ish. I think we had a couple episodes after election day. Um, and so Michael was just out of the gate, such a gifted person behind the mic. You know, he had been a reporter for years, um, but had never done anything uh, in podcast. But he was so good at talking to his colleagues and getting them to think bigger thoughts about their pieces than they had originally. And he also is a person who is just, he's just a generous thinker. He, He inserts himself when he needs to, and he also steps back when he doesn't need to be there. And I think that's what I, as a producer, most respect because so often you could have hosts who are stepping all over people or very clearly like want to be the story, especially in podcast, you know, the host that wants to be the story. Michael doesn't want to be the story. Michael wants the reporter or the outside guest to shine. And it's a really unique thing for, for, for somebody who, you know, has worked in a newsroom for as long as he has and, and is so giving of his time and, and also like, so propping up his colleagues, frankly, that's how in the beginning we were able to get a lot of the stuff that we did because the reporters just wanted to talk to him. They really liked him and they wanted to help him out. And so that, that's how we landed on him, that he had done such a great job at the elections thing. And then he just sort of sallied into the, into the daily thing. And, um, and I think it's funny, you hear different reactions about, uh, about how people think about him on the show. I think some people think he's a super, super, like, uh, he's a very much a presence. And then I think other people think like, oh no, the, the, the thing that I remember is like this moment in the interview or whatever. Um, 
which I like, like as a producer and, and as a person who really wants the audio to shine, I think that he lets, as I say, he's, he's in it when he needs to be in it and he's out of it when he needs to be out of it. And I think that's, that's what's successful about it. Yeah. Hi, I'm Kate. Hi, going, Kate. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Good. Um, going off of that, how do you approach working with reporters who don't have a ton of experience with yeah. audio? Yeah. Because it seems like, I mean, you had Matt Apuzo in the beginning, like, yeah. painting this beautiful picture that not everybody is good at doing. Yeah. Um, and then you, I've noticed you guys have a lot of kind of tape from reporters, and uh-huh. um, I don't know if that's something that you asked of them yeah. to record, or they had yeah. already, like, recorded. I'm oh, just curious about yeah. that process. Yeah, so, so first point, um, many people who are, we know, we all know this, many people who are very good at writing are not always good at talking. So what we do, uh, first and foremost, is we let the reporters in on what we're up to. So with Matt, you know, we'll say, okay, we want to start with this scene in Manafort's house. Okay. Just take us there. Like, don't move ahead. Don't go too quickly. Because very often what will happen is that people will want to tell you their entire story in the first answer, or they'll want to give you all of their analysis as you're just trying to paint a scene. So one thing that, that we say all the time is stay in the moment. Okay, we're going to ask you this question and then we're going to move on. But we're going to get to all of your big thoughts. But we just right now need to stay in the moment. And that helps people a lot. Um, the other thing that we do with reporters when it comes to outside tape is that very often they've recorded it for their own purposes. So in their own reporting, they'll have recording. But um, very often they don't think of it. Or what we've done a lot recently is where reporters have gone out to report in disaster areas, like on all the hurricanes and stuff, we'll hook up with the folks early and we'll say, hey, uh, uh, Francis Robles, perfect example in Puerto Rico. You're going out. Um, we're we're going to want you to roll on almost everything you do. And, and we have very specific asks. Like, you know, we, we want to be in a moment where something's happening. We want to be in the moment when you're, you know, discovering whatever's going on at the funeral home or whatever. And we also want you to be able to insert yourself where need be, where telling us where you are and that kind of thing. So that involves a lot of prep. But there are, then there are just these special moments where all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, you recorded your interview with whoever. Like, that's great, you know, and then we can, and then we can capitalize on that. But it's a little bit right now a mix of like luck and, and preparation. Other stuff? Hey, I'm Tegan. Hi, Tegan. Uh, I have kind of another cultural question. Okay. You know, it's it's great that you are giving guests a chance to sort of breathe and take their yeah. time and answering and giving Michael a chance to react to that. But I wonder how that challenges, you know, the sort of behemoth of this institution, mm. the New York Times, like how mm. it challenges mm-hmm. the editorial process and is forcing uh-huh. people there to rethink what that means. Mm. And I'm thinking in particular about the coal miner episode. Yeah, sure. So... Uh, one of the things that's amazing about the audio team at the times is that we are our own everything. Like we, we decide what we want to do. We very, very rarely get much, uh, pestering from anybody. Um, it's a beautiful thing. It's like, I think why we've done, why we've done well, because I I've heard from people at other places where you go in and you try to make audio. Maybe you guys have experienced this where you're the only person who understands audio you're the only one who's sticking up for what it is that you want to make. You're the only one who's saying this is what is going to work in audio. And I know you want to do this thing or that thing, but like, listen to me. Right. Um, and what's cool about us is that we're all audio journalists. Um, 
and we understand the like importance of of an interview like that or the importance of letting things uh, breathe and take time. And so that has been a huge blessing because we just really don't have people breathing down our necks to do this or do that. Um, when it comes to upsetting the, somebody else had asked about like the, the tone of the times, very much a reason why we exist is because they want us to do that. They want us to push what it means to convey information in journalism. Like uh, we, we tick a lot of boxes for the times, right? We're like, we're getting a younger audience. We're getting a more female audience. We're getting people to build a habit with the, with the paper. We're, we're having people come to us every day and it's become part of their routine. And they realize that a big part of that is because we are conversational and we are informal and we are pushing what it means for Times journalists to, to report. Um, and the thing that we hear from the reporters and from the masthead and whatnot is that people are responding to it because they're able to talk like themselves, because they don't have to say Mr. Trump, because they can push all of those rules kind of out the window because they're just talking to their friend, Michael. Um, and they get great, great reporters get great, great, great feedback from what they do on the, t on the show. And that's why they want to come on. Like, you know, we have reporters who say, I've, I've worked here decades. I get texts from people saying, oh my God, I heard you on the daily. It's so amazing. You work at the Times. <laughs> and they say, yeah, okay. I've worked here 12 years. Like <laughs> read one of my stories. Um, but, you know, that makes us feel so good because we, we just feel like, yeah, the more that we can push those boundaries, get reporters to, to try new things, get the, get the paper to understand what it is that we're up to, and then have them support us, that's, I feel like, the way that you, you break down some of the behemothness of the place. Yeah. Hi, my hey. name's Olivia. Um, and I just wondered if you had any insight on... I guess kind of like marketing the show. Like mm. when you first launched, I mean, you obviously have the New York Times as a great, you know, megaphone, but what were some other things you did initially to find your audience or continue to do today? Mm -hmm. So, right, that's the thing that, that we have that I feel like is sort of unfair to talk about because <laughs> cause I, what we had was we were on the homepage every day. We are on the homepage every day. We're at the top of the app every day. We're on the Twitter, you know, the millions of people who follow Times on Twitter. We're, we're, um, we have that marketing arm, and what it meant was that we didn't really have to do much I mean, well, we had to make a great show, <laughs> but, but we didn't have to do, we didn't have to do the marketing in any way ourselves. Um, so I, I feel sort of bad talking about that because it's such a unique advantage. Um, but you know, our, our, our dreams have kind of come true because our big focus was to get younger people and we have them. And a big part of that also had to do with just like being at the top of the charts and, you know, getting some nice, like buzzy internet write-ups and, um, and just like the ambassadors, you know, the people who love the show, love the show and love to share it with other people. And I think that that like person by person is how, but what we see is we see an uptick as news happens as well. That's what I mean about um, Trump, the blessing and the curse. Like he not only, he fills our shows, very oftentimes he makes news and we have to change things and that's a real pain. But at the same time, he's created so much news. We see an uptick, you know, post Charlottesville, we saw, we saw an uptick post uh, Comey Oval Office meeting, we saw an uptick. So like as those news events happen, that's very much marketing for us in a lot of ways because people become re-engaged and realize I need to know what's going on. I need to tune into the show. Um, so last question. Yeah. Um, hi, I'm Lane. That just made me wonder yeah. how 
How much is it a conversation in the room to look at a time that Trump does something that does make breaking news and the pressure to just go there because it happened or to mm. tell another story mm. of equal importance, if mm-hmm. not greater importance, that then doesn't get told? Yeah, I mean, I think we're really aware that we don't want to be the Trump show and that we don't need to cover every tweet and that there's a way to cover this president that is really deep and significant and is not just chasing every... I mean, the conversation we very often have is, is this insider? Is this just political drama for drama's sake? Or is this something that actually has real consequence? Um, You know, because there's so many many stories you could do about Kushner fighting with Bannon, fighting with Sessions, fighting with... You know, there's like a million different little threads like that that you could pick on. But very often we're like, well, is this really actually going to have much consequence in the end. And if it doesn't, then we let it lie. And um, and hopefully what we do is we instead feed you a story that's apart from that and is is much deeper and, and has more lasting consequences. So thanks, guys. I'm happy to talk later um, about anything and, and connect. Thank you. That was Theo Balcom speaking at the 2017 Work It Festival. Both the festival and the podcast are produced by WNYC Studios and are made possible by a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with additional support from the Annenberg Foundation. Event sponsors include Cole Hahn, Mac Cosmetics, and thirdlove.com. 